And as a few of you are unable to find a seat, uh, we do have a few spots. They are um, in the splash zone right up here up front. Um, so just want to invite you, you can come up to uh, grab a seat. And if you're a guest with us, um, just thank you so much for being here. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And uh, we're so thankful to be able to worship with you this morning, to be together this morning. Um, and especially just wanted to say uh, a word of thank you for um, even your patience. Um, as uh, one great theologian said, we're going to need a bigger boat. And um, we do. We're uh, outgrowing our beautiful space here rather quickly. And so um, just know that our, our uh, elder team and uh, leadership team are um, really in constant prayer about how to, uh, to navigate the, the joy of what God is doing here. And, um, but let me just also say it is joy. What an amazing thing to be in a place where God is moving and uh, to see him building his kingdom here um, an answer to many, many years of prayer, building his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And, uh, and so as one of the elders here in this church, just being able to see what God is doing in our midst um, and having a front row seat to all of that is really a joy. So again, thank you for your patience this morning. And um, we'll be taking volunteers for that new 8 a.m. service um, <laughs> shortly. Some of y'all got really nervous. You know, the problem of evil that we read about, we hear from that reading of Exodus chapter 9, um, is a challenge that I expect many of us um, think about or have thought about in the past, um, asking ourselves the question, why does God even allow evil? Perhaps you've had some skeptical friends who have asked that and posed that question to you after hearing that you're a Christian or a faithful uh, believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. They've said, well, how could you do that? And how does evil and good and where is the balance between those things? Why doesn't God do something about all that we see in the world? And surely a good God would see that. And perhaps I would just go so far as to say my expectation is, is that while I'm thinking of friends and conversations that I've had and that perhaps you have had, more than likely there's someone he even here in this room right now that you've been wrestling or you have in the past wrestled with this problem or this challenge or where is God in the midst of these hard things? Questions that are natural for us to ask. But the challenge, I think, when we start to dig into that, if we're really honest with ourselves, is we realize so much more than we would ever really want to admit that we are a part of that problem, the problem that is, exists in our mind is something that we're a part of. You know, our tendency is, I don't know if you guys are like me, but to sort of skirt that issue or sort of try to push it aside, not really address it, not really deal with it, um, maybe even convincing ourselves of something will sort of justify ourselves by saying, well, yeah, there's, there's evil in the world, there's sin in the world, the world is broken, but it didn't really involve me. That's, that's other people that are a part of that problem. And we sort of try to diminish um, our sins or diminish the brokenness in our own lives, right? I don't really hurt anyone. I don't, there's nothing that happens as a result of my sin. It's just sort of personal sin. But isn't any evil too much for a holy God? If we contrast darkness against the light of Christ, wouldn't any amount of evil be too great? Some of you may remember 
a few, I think it was a couple of years ago, I lost track of the timing of this, but remember that blue dress that some people said was a gray dress or something like that? There was this uh, great debate amongst the nations over what color this dress was that was circulating through social media. And if you've been insulated from that debate, then you are, bless you, you just, your life is better, okay? So if you've never heard about this, but there was this rampant debate and people would look at the picture and different people would see different things. Um, and it's because there's some, in a sense, literal gray area about what color that dress was. But when we look at the darkness, the brokenness, the darkness of evil, and we contrast it to the light of God's holiness, there is no debate that any evil, any holiness is too much. One pastor recently said, even if we lived on a deserted island, where our sins could, in effect, offend no one, they do offend a holy God. And so if that is the case, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll realize that the scriptures are true, as they always are. We really self-reflect. There's none righteous, it says in Romans 3. It later says that we all fall short of the glory of God. So, when we're thinking about and trying to understand the problem of evil and where is God in that situation, why isn't God dealing with it, we have to be really honest. We have to put ourselves in that equation. And that would lead us to say, where is God in the evil in my own life, in my own, I am a part of that. Now, we started with Exodus chapter 9 because I wanted us to see this problem and God's interaction with evil from multiple places and how there's such a similarity as we work through it. As we look at Joshua chapter 11, those of you that are, have been a part of our church for a little bit of time, we have been working our way through the book of Joshua and we're in chapter 11 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. But we see this challenge come face to face Again, So let me pray and ask the Spirit to help us to understand. Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would move in our hearts, open up our hearts and our minds to understand you, God, to see what you are doing, to see how you have dealt with the problem of evil. I pray that we would not so quickly point to others, but we would allow you to even reveal the brokenness in our own hearts. That as you do that, we might also find your mercy. And that would lead us to be a people who worship not just this morning, but every moment of our lives as we acknowledge how kind you are, how gracious you are, God. Do all of that in a way that only you can do. I have no ability to do that on my own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've studied the book of Joshua, and especially over the last couple of chapters, 9, 10, 11, 12, I opened up this section. We're not to 12 yet, but I opened up this section saying that we're going to see Israel come up against many armies. And these armies, unlike the previous battles, would be literal. They would actually be battles where the armies would stand against the people of God. In the past, they would sort of just fall down as they did at Jericho. 
But here, there's actual armies. And in chapter 10, we looked at last week, these five kings, they create an alliance against the people of Israel, recognizing that they had no ability to defeat Israel on their own because they had made this covenant with the Gibeonites. And these two groups of people coming together, the Gibeon army was a great army. And so they had to have an alliance. Well, here, once again, when we come to chapter 11, we're going to see a new alliance, another group of kings that has come together. And I'm going to skip over this, the entry verses, but in verse 4, we pick up, and this describes this great uh, army that is coming against Israel this time. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. So we saw last week five kings band together and create an alliance to go against Israel. They are destroyed. They were ultimately killed. Here is an even larger army of people with hordes, as it says, numbering the seashores, an army that could be not numbered because it was so great with all of the various horses and chariots that would go along with it. And they come and they stand against the Israelites. And so this is what God tells Joshua to do and the response of God to this great army in chapter 6 or excuse me, in verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. Don't be afraid, Joshua. Here's another promise. I will give over even this great army, an army that you can't number, that looks larger than anything you face to this point. I will give them over to you tomorrow. And they will all be slain. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Mishrapheth, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and he burned their chariots with fire. The next few verses in 10 and following, God continues to describe this great attack that he levied against the enemies. These sinful people, these people that stood up against the army of God, he completely destroys them. And if you're like me, here's something that I have thought of often as we've studied this book. Man, there is a lot of people who are destroyed and killed in this story. As God sends his army in to take possession of this land, all of these people have been wiped out. And so sometimes, as you've read this, it's not uh, lost on me that more than likely many of us sort of As we often do, we read our Bibles and we try to sort of put ourselves in the story. We've put ourselves in the place of Joshua, where God has told us to be strong and courageous. And we have these enemies and these challenges in our lives. And we're holding on to the promises of God that he will be faithful and just and he will redeem us and he will take care of us. And all of those things are true. But one of the things that we don't often do is to think of ourselves in the place of all of these armies. Because they're evil, and we're not that evil. They, are, they should be destroyed because they have stood up against God's holiness. They have seen all that God has done 
And they have completely rejected it and gone so far as to even create alliances after alliances to try and stand up against the people of God. We do have two examples from the book of Joshua where there are some people that took a different approach. But again, notice here in 11, back in chapter 9, it'll happen again in 12. These people didn't do this. But Rahab, she saw the God of Israel for who he was, saw his power and his might and all that he had done. And in response to understanding that, she said, I am not going to stand against the people of God. In fact, she came to their aid and we studied that chapter and know that story. A couple chapters ago, we saw the people, the Hivites that lived in Gibeon. And it says here in this story that only they were the people who did not stand against the people of Israel. They made an alliance. Now, they went about it in kind of a shady way, let's just be honest, but they did. They at least were smart enough to say, I know that if I try to fight these people, we are going to die. We will be completely destroyed. (laughs) Only them, everyone else in this story has seen all that God has done, and they still believe in their obstinance, in their pride, that their end will be different. So God, one of the things that we can see here is that God clearly is dealing with evil, but there's also a purpose in what he is doing. We read about Pharaoh. If you went back to Exodus chapter 9, and what did it say at the end of what Paul read for us? That all that God did, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's complete rejection, he sort of again plays the part. He acts as if he's going to submit so that the hailstorms would stop. There's this great sort of God is demonstrating his power against Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, okay, Moses, if you'll just tell your God that I relent, that I believe in him, that I'm going to follow him, then that'll be great. I'll do that if that'll make all of this stop. Moses replies, yeah, I know you don't really believe that, but I'll go ahead and tell God that anyway. He goes out, he lifts up his arms, the hailstorm stops, and immediately Pharaoh rejects the Lord. His heart is hardened against God. He is completely obstinate and rejects any submission to the Lord. And why did God do all of that? It says in that last verse that we read from chapter 10, so that his name would be glorified. So God's fame would increase in the world. We don't just have to look in the Old Testament. We can look in the New Testament. This won't be on the screens behind me until the very last verse. But if you want to flip over to John chapter 12, you can, I'm going to pick up in verse 36. Here Jesus has had this interaction with the religious leaders of the day. And here and there he understands because of what he's been doing that they are now going to come against him, but it's not time for him to go to the cross. And so it says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. I just laugh a little bit with Jesus having to hide, but he, again, he had a purpose in this, so he removes himself from the danger of their coming against him. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They still did not believe in him. They would not see what God was doing in their midst, even when Jesus, the Messiah, was right in front of their face, they would reject him. Why? So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is what the great prophet said. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. The prophet Isaiah, great prophet, one of the largest books in our Bible, is the story of Isaiah warning the Israelites over and over and over again. And in a sense, Isaiah is given a ministry that is almost fruitless. He sees they, they will not hear from Isaiah. They won't listen to him. He's told them over and over again to repent and turn from their sins. And it says here, they won't do it. And in the cosmic plan of God, here is where we get a glimpse of what God is doing as he deals with evil. It looks to us sometimes as if he's allowing this evil to remain and be pervasive in the land. Is that that happened in Isaiah's life because God, who is not bound by time and doesn't live in the linear world that we live in, knew that there would be people who would also reject the Messiah. And he would use this story to point backwards and say, they've been doing it forever and ever and ever so that Jesus' ministry would continue. Isaiah said these things, it says in verse 41, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Fear of man, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And here's the emphasis of this text, verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They would reject the Messiah, seemingly allowing evil to remain and to continue in the world, even through the religious leaders, because they worshiped themselves. And they were more fearful of what man might say of them than they were about what God would say of them. So over and over again, as we look at this text, Joshua, we see, deals with these kings that come against him. And if we skip down to verse 16, it says this, Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, from the lowland to the Arabah, and the hill country, of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir, as far as Balgad and the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except, here we go, the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. God does deal with evil. The problem that we have, where we have to start, is to recognize that it's not just other people It's not just the people that we can point our fingers to that are the evil ones, but that we ourselves, once, many, all of us, fallen short of the glory of God. I know that doesn't sound very hopeful. You're thinking, man, this guy is a real beat down. This is God's word, friends. It's not for me. This is what God says that he sees the evil in the world and that he uses it to accomplish his purposes. This is 
what is amazing about our God. See, you and I, as we consider all of the things that are going on in our life and have the various challenges that we see, if we were God, you know, you ever play that game? If I got to be president for the day, if I got to be in charge for the day, this is what I would do. Well, you, would, you, you arrange everything and it's always for good. If this happens and this happens and this happens, well, I would do this and I would do that. And, you know, or I know y'all aren't following with me right now, so I'll just bring it up. The lottery, okay, anyone? If I won the lottery, well, of course, I'd give, you know, my portion to City Church. And then after that, <laughs> I'd buy my house, I'd get my cars, I'd do whatever I wanted to do. And that's in your being God for the day. But it's always good things that happen, right? Isn't it always good things that we sort of arrange and sort of dream about in our minds? But see, here we see the bigness of God and the sovereignty of God on full display because God will even use evil things, brokenness, complete rejection of who he is to bring about the goodness of himself to the world. See, man, we can't do that. I can't take something that is evil, something that is sinful, something that is broken and make that good. In fact, I can't even think about how I would do that. I'm sure you are all smarter than me, but that, my mind doesn't even go there. I can't think about how to, but almighty God, the sovereign God does that. He takes those things and he uses them for good. Even a Pharaoh who has hardened his heart against God over and over and over again. So much so that God hardens his heart and turns him away. These kings that have seen God move over and over and over again, been witness to all that God is doing, and their hearts are hardened by God to turn from him, and God uses that to bring about goodness for his people. People who rejected the Messiah, because that's what God intended to use. This is all part of God's plan. So, there's five things that this teaches us as we think about and look closely at this text. The first thing is, is that evil is a result of the fallenness of this world. Evil is the result of the fallenness of this world. When we see evil, when we see brokenness, when we see things that are not right as we believe they should be, as we contrast them to what we see about what the scripture describes as the right relationship between God and man, when there are all these things, we know that this is a result of the fall. If you have children in the room, I know we laugh about this a lot, but we all know as parents, we do not train our children to sin. I mean, we do because they watch us, but they, they, they do that quite on their own very quickly without any effort on our part. That's just because it's part of our nature. We are the same. Again, what Romans says about us, we all fall short of the glory of God. That is the truth. And it's a result of the fallenness of this world. And so when we look around and we see evil and we see brokenness, one of the things that we should not do is it should not cause us to despair, although we should be, have broken hearts and we should be empathetic and all of those sorts of things. It shouldn't cause us to despair and say, God is not involved any longer. God has taken his hands off of the reins of this world. No, he is very much involved. And because he is involved, there's a constraint to evil. I know we don't think about this very often. It's sometimes hard for us to get our minds around this, but it is God's graciousness and it is his hand upon this world that constrains us from completely going, completely rejecting all of God and this world becoming much worse than even what we can see with our own eyes today. 
The second thing that we know is true. We see it in the way that God deals with these evil kings. And yes, although we didn't read about it here in Joshua chapter 11, you can look at other biblical texts about these kings. You can look at, look at extra biblical sort of historical records about these people and they all exist. And they will tell you that these people were completely pagan, evil, standing against God. Even so much here we do see they won't see what he's done and they won't relent. They won't turn from their ways. What we can know, though, is that God will judge evil. It will be dealt with. Now, sometimes we have a problem with that, right? Because we say to ourselves, well, I don't really, isn't God just supposed to love everything and just kind of let it all go? Again, if God is holy, then he must be just. Those two things can't be separated from one another. And as we struggle with that, just because it's in our pride and in our nature to do this, it's not something that's necessarily, it is wrong with us, but it's we're, we have this in common that we think, I'm not sure, why does he have to do that? Why does evil have to be dealt with? As Brother Kent once said, who else should? <laughs> who else is worthy to make judgment against sin and against evil in the world? Is it you or I? Because I know that as we have conversations, I'll say, well, you know, I, I think I'll let this one slide. And then you'll come along beside me, man, but, you know, it, it's okay. Let, let, let's move the bar over here. And then we'll, we'll just keep going on down the line until who decides what is right and what is wrong? Who decides what is good and what is evil? God does. And he's the only one that rightfully can. And because he can, we know that he will judge Evil, it will be dealt with. So as you struggle and ask that question again, a fair and right sometimes question to ask, where are you, Lord? What are you doing in our midst? Why do I see these things happening? And why haven't you done something about it? Be encouraged in this. He will. He will do it perfectly. Another friend of mine once said, we will get to eternity, meet God face to face, and all of the questions and the doubts and the things that we're unsure of, what about this, what about that, we will recognize that a holy, righteous, and just God dealt perfectly with everything. When we have his perspective, when we can see things in some way as he sees them, as if that were possible, but as we get a little bit closer to that, we'll realize you dealt perfectly with that situation, Lord. That's exactly what should have happened. Right now, we can't see that. It's hard for us, and that's understandable, but it will be. Third thing, and let this be a warning to us all. There is a point where God will give us over to our sin. We saw that in Pharaoh. We see that with these kings that Joshua is facing here. If you want to look at Romans chapter 1, another great text that is very rich in speaking to these realities. I'll read from verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, who he is, it says, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. 
saying that when we look at the world, even when we look at one another, we can see that God is real. We can understand that he exists. I've often marveled that, and this will, you know, it's just who, how I, I don't know, my perspective. When my first son was born, I was like, oh boy, that's amazing. Seeing a child come to life, some of y'all didn't sigh big enough for that. That is an amazing thing. <laughs> yes, I'm in awe of my beautiful wife and her strength, but boy, I'm just, you, you created life. Like to witness that and to see the creation of that. If I said in the, in the room, I remember saying this, I might've said it to Laurel, I definitely said it to every nurse that would listen to me. How could you deny God after you just, if, if, as you see this happen over and over again, his power in creation in so many other places. And that's what Paul is addressing here. And he says, because of this, it's been clearly seen that there's none without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He's addressing the pagan worship that they engaged in. Rather than worshiping the creator, they began to worship the created things. Fear of man. Rather than worshiping God himself, we will worship what other people, the created things, think about us. We won't turn away from the things that God says, no. We won't repent of our sinfulness when we come face to face with that. And in verse 24, 26, and 28 of Romans chapter 1, guess what every single one of those verses begins with? Therefore, God gave them up. There's a point where God gives us over to our sin. And let this be not a beat down. Don't let this be some word of oppression from the Lord, but know that the Lord brought you here and is inviting you to say, yes, Lord, I understand these areas of my life are sinful. I understand that I don't live up to your glory and therefore repent because in his mercy and in his grace, he brought you here so that you could turn away from those things. Not to condemn you, but so you might receive his mercy this morning. I remember as a teenager, many of you know my story. I've shared it often here. I came to faith in Christ late in my teen years, just basically my senior year. I'm 17 years old, living up to that point completely for myself, doing whatever I wanted to do. And as the Holy Spirit began to work on my heart, this is what would happen. I'd live my life, do whatever I felt like doing that day to the, you know, a certain extent. I'd lay down in my bed at night and I would ask the Lord, I know that wasn't right. I know my life is not what it should be. Would you forgive me? Would you, could, could, I, could I have a, another try? I didn't have any language for how to talk to God. I didn't understand all of that. The next morning, whatever I wanted to do. At night, Lord, I know, yesterday, kind of deal that, but can we, can we try again tomorrow? The next day, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, over and over and over again. And I know many of your testimonies is 20, 30, 40, 50 years, however long it is. 
The Lord's hand and his arm is gracious and it reaches far. He is long suffering. But there is a point and we don't know what that is. And so let today be the day of salvation where you say, I'm going to turn away from those sinful things. I'm going to turn away from rejecting. I'm going to stop rejecting the Lord built on some false argument that you understand in your own heart is you just want to worship yourself. That's what we do. That's what I have done. I'm not alone in this. You're not alone in this. We should turn from our sins and we should repent. Fourth thing, this perhaps is one of the most amazing things. God uses evil. God uses all of the broken things of this world to display even his goodness. See, when you come to realize that your heart, my heart, is no different than Pharaoh's, As I said, we like to insert ourselves into the story and we want to be Joshua, we want to be Moses, we want to be the heroes. It's it's natural. But more often than not, we're like Pharaoh where we have rejected God like I just shared over and over and over again. I want to do it my way. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Don't really care what you have to say about that, Lord. Don't really care about that decision. Don't really care. Not going to consult you about that because this is what I want to do. And this is what makes me feel good. This is what I believe is right. This is what my friends want me to do. Whatever the stories that we tell ourselves, we do that over and over and over again. We're much more like Pharaoh. And we're much more like the armies that came against Joshua. And yet, you came here for some hope? Here it is. God does not condemn us. You're here. You're hearing of his mercy. You're hearing of his grace. If I were God, guess what? Back to playing God, I would just get rid of it all. Evil, done. I used to play with my G.I. Joes back in the day. Some of you kids didn't get G.I. Joes. I'm sorry for you. But I had the bad guy, Cobra, right? Had the good guys, I'd dig all sorts of trenches and I'd, guess what, Cobra guy does something wrong, off with his head, destroyed. (laughs) Only by God's grace did I not end up injuring animals or something in all my kind of crazy mind. But that's what I would do. I wouldn't allow it to exist in my world. I would only do what was right, but only God a gracious and loving God could take all of the evil and the brokenness that exists in this world and use it for good. And so much, and here is where the rubber meets the road on how it's for our good. I know that I'm much more like Pharaoh, and yet I also know that I'm adopted as a son of God. How can I not worship when I hold those two truths in my mind? I am like Pharaoh. I am like the enemies against Israel. I am like the people who rejected Christ. I am much more a Pharisee than I am. I'm the older brother and the younger brother in the story of the prodigals. I'm all of them. I'm all of the people that say no to God, reject God, push back against him. And yet, all of that evil in my own heart, he calls me son. And he looks at me and he calls me the righteousness of God. When I know And don't any longer try to push off evil as it's that other people over there, the people that look differently than me, vote differently than me, do things differently than me, but I know it's me and I receive God's mercy. How can I not live a life of worship? 
How can I not give my life completely to him without any holding anything back? No, I'm not going to. I want you have all of me, Lord, because I know what I deserve. I deserve a heart that is hard against you, that is unwilling to repent of sin, that is unwilling to be able to run to you and show myself and, and, and just confess everything to you. That's who I know myself to be. And yet he receives me. He loves me. He loves you. You are here. So you could hear that. Whatever you've been running from, no matter how much you've been rejecting the Lord, he brought you here so you could hear how much he loves you. So we could sing that song together that you don't know is a song for your own heart. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. You sang those words, but you didn't believe it in your heart. But perhaps now, Holy Spirit, we hope, is moving to say, yes, I am a sinner in need of mercy, and I have a God who loves me. You may ask yourself this morning, be thinking to yourself, well, what if it is too far for me? Is my heart hardened to the Lord? Have I rejected him one too many times? Once again, here's the beautiful, beautiful message of the gospel. The hope that God gives us. If you're asking yourself that question, then you are not. Because only people who have completely have no care about what God might say, who have zero concern for his will, his purposes, what anything that he's doing in the world, that is what a hardened heart looks like. People that are asking ourselves, Lord, I realize there's some areas in my life that I don't know about. He's giving you an opportunity in this moment to repent of those sins and to turn to him. That is not evidence of a hardened heart. So the fact that you're asking that question, there is great hope. And as our worship team comes up, I'm going to read. This is the final hope, the final point, number five. There will one day be a complete and everlasting end to all the evil that we see in the world. You want to know what God is doing? There's a lot that he's doing. There's a lot that he's doing in our midst. There's a lot that he may be, I hope, doing in your own lives. The end of the story is where we find our hope from Revelation chapter 21. And just as a quick aside, I know we look to this book often for answers about various circumstances in our world. Is this what's happening? Does this line up there? And there's nothing wrong with that, with studying our Bibles and trying to understand what God is doing. But if you've allowed the book of Revelation to come some sort of treasure map to figure out when and what and all these things that God is doing, and if you've stopped looking at it as the end of the story that is our ultimate hope that just points us to the fact that Jesus will be victorious over it all no matter how he does it, then just come back to this book. Just Let's just marvel that Jesus will win the day. Evil will not stand. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and Jesus and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Remember where that was said? The garden. God dwelled perfectly with man before the fall. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear. Not just some of the tears. Not just the tears that were cried about the right or the wrong things. But every tear will be wiped away. And death. Yes, death shall be no more. If we don't fear death, what do we have to fear? Why would we fall and down and worship at the throne of men and not worship at the throne of an almighty God who has preserved us, has given us entrance into everlasting eternal life that cannot be taken? Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Let me keep going, one more verse. And he said, who is seated on the throne? This is Jesus that's on that throne. Behold, I am making all things new. That's what Jesus is doing. He's doing it now, but ultimately he will finish what he has started. He will make all things new. So that problem that you have with evil, I get it, it's painful. This world is broken. It exists in our own heart. God invites us to lay down our lives, to fall down and worship Him, to understand who He is, to give our lives to Him and trust that that future is ours. We're going to respond as we always do with a song of worship. It's called Be Enthroned. And I'd like to just invite us as we sing this song, perhaps some of you need to just spend some time with the Lord, turning from your sin, confessing your sins to the Lord, repenting of those and perhaps receiving the hope of Christ for the very first time. Our elders will be down front in just a few moments. We'd love to just talk with you about that, to have a conversation with you about what it means to give your life, to follow Jesus, to submit to Him as Lord of your life. But for the rest of us, if that's not you, as we sing this song, Be Enthroned, let it be our prayer that we would be people worship God in such a way that generation upon generation upon generation worship Him with us. We're going to sing, be enthroned upon the praises of a thousand generations. And I used to sometimes think of that in past tense, and that's okay too. But let's keep our hearts and minds on the future. Let's think of that forward and say, if we are the people who worship the Lord, who understand the mercy and the grace that we have received and live lives completely submitted to Him, how many generations might God save and redeem through us, through this church? I don't know. Ten generations after I'm dead, will this church, if Christ hasn't come to redeem us and take us all home, will this church be standing Word of God, proclaiming the Word of God, believing it because of the foundation of all of us. I believe that's my prayer. That should be all our prayer. As we go out into our lives and live on our streets and in our neighborhoods, on our teams, in our schools, in our places of business, as we live lives understanding the mercy that we have received from God and worshiping Him with everything that we are, how many generations will be affected by your faithful obedience to the Lord as a co-worker watches 
then in some miraculous way receives the mercy of Christ through them. I don't know what God can do. I do know he can do all of that, though. So as we stand and sing, let's let this be a prayer. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.